Good morning to you all. Church family, good morning. If you're a visitor, I welcome you as well. And I'd like you to fill out one of those welcome cards if you're a visitor. That's a good way for us to get to know you a little bit better. That would serve us in getting to know you. Well, we're continuing and completing our series on church unity this morning. Go ahead and open up to Philippians 2. We'll be covering three verses this morning. We have a lot, of talk, a lot to talk about, so I won't spend long on an introduction. We'll get to the main course. But I do want to make a comment about the relevance of what I'll be talking about this morning and just the past two sermons. What I'm talking about this morning, the way Paul addresses us in Philippians, is specifically with reference to church unity. Paul is talking about church unity here. And that's how I'm going to mainly apply it this morning. But I don't want us to think that this message, these principles that I'm teaching, are not applicable outside of the church. Anywhere there is disunity, what I'm saying this morning will work. The reason why that is is because disunity is a result of sin. And the, the answer to sin is Christ's righteousness, of which we'll be talking about. So even though I'm talking about church unity, this refers to unity in a family, unity with reference to spouses, unity in the workplace, anywhere you go. This morning's message can address the notion of disunity and how to bring about unity. So don't think that this only refers to the church. This refers to all of life. Now with that said, let's go ahead and read in Philippians 2, 3 through 2, 5. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We're going to tackle this text by starting with verse 5 and then going to verse 3 and ending with verse 4. And I'll have three points, and each point will correspond with a verse. So for my first point, it will correspond with verse 5. We're talking this morning about how do we have unity? How do we have church unity? A very important question to ask. And the first point, the first way that we achieve church unity together is this, write this. Imitate Christ. Imitate Christ. The way we, the first way that we achieve church unity is by corporately and individually imitating Christ. And I get this from verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, as I talked about last week, in verse 5, we have this occurrence of this verb, phreneo. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I referenced it last week. This is a very important verb for understanding church unity. And whenever Paul says have this mind, what he's saying is that we are to think along the same lines. We are to have a corporate mindset. We are to phreneo in the same manner. And this means, as I alluded to, it's a mindset. A mindset is the incorporation of thoughts, of feelings, attitudes, dispositions. It's a broad concept. And what Paul is saying is that for us to have unity... We have to share in this mindset together. We have to agree with one another regarding the most important things of life. And notice what Paul says at the end of verse 5. He says this mindset is, quote, yours in Christ Jesus. 
And what Paul is doing here, what Paul means by this last phrase, this last statement, is that he's rooting the corporate mindset that the Philippians and we are to have in Christ himself. He is telling us, another way to understand this passage, is to think the same thoughts that Christ himself had in his earthly ministry. The characterization of our mindset here should be the same mindset that Jesus Christ himself had in his earthly ministry. And this notion of imitation is very prominent everywhere we go in life. Whenever I was a child, I used to imitate my father. I used to have a fake plastic Fred Flintstone razor. And whenever my dad would shave, I would also shave with the fake razor myself. Whenever my dad would mow the grass, I'd get outside and push a little plastic lawnmower. And as Christians, that's what we want our children to do. We want them to imitate us. And this notion of imitation goes into the workplace. If you're training an employee, you want them to imitate you in a certain way. And also, this notion of imitation is central to the calling of Christianity. It's central. It's absolutely central. If you were to boil down Christianity into one idea, that one idea could be the notion of imitation. And we get this from Jesus himself. The reason why imitation is essential in Christianity is because Jesus himself taught it. Listen to all of these passages. This all come from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 4, 19. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Matthew 8, 22. And Jesus said, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Matthew 9, 9. And Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. Matthew 10, 38. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Matthew 16, 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Matthew 19, 21, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. What Jesus is saying is the same idea that Paul is saying. It's this notion of imitation. To follow Jesus means to imitate him. The Bible teaches that Jesus is our savior, that Jesus has come to die for our sins, that based solely upon his death and resurrection for us, we can be forgiven before God. And as a result of that, he is also our example. If you want to know how you should live your life, dear brother and sister, you look to Jesus, you imitate him, you imitate his attitudes, his mindset, his action, his dispositions, his kindness, his love, his prayer life. That's what Christianity is. We imitate Jesus. And bringing that back to Philippians, this is where we find church unity. The reason why churches are disunified is because its members do not imitate Jesus. And therefore, the way we have church unity the way we pursue church unity, the way we have unity with our spouse and with our friends and with our siblings and with our children is by imitating Christ. It's that simple. And specifically here in the church, we imitate Jesus' mindset. 
We share in this together. We share his attitudes. We share his dispositions. We share his feelings and his thoughts. We model him. We follow him. That's what Paul means in Philippians 2.5. Now that's a pretty general statement. And what Paul says in three verses 3 and 4 are more specific. So that's kind of the general idea. But that's the idea that the other two points that I have this morning are rooted in. Ethics and morality is very important for Christians. We are called to live holy lives. But ultimately, our ethics and morality are rooted in Jesus Christ. It's not solely about just living a righteous life. It's about Jesus. And because of him, therefore we live in a certain way. So verse, uh, excuse me, point one, verse five, is what grounds my next two points. Second point, being more specific, being more specific than just imitating Christ. How do we have church unity? We write this, point two, be humble. Humility, have humility, be humble. And I get this from verse three. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Paul has two commandments here. He has a prohibition at the beginning of verse three, and then he has a, com- a, 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 a commandment at the end of verse three. And the prohibition is this. Do nothing, dear Christian, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. If you wanna know how to split a church, how to have disunity, if you want to do that in life, if that's your goal, which I pray it isn't, a clear tail road to do that is having selfish ambition and conceit. Disunified church churches have that feeling about them. They have that motive within its people and its members. And this is sin, dear friend. This is what God calls us to repent of. So let's, let's understand these notions a little bit more. Selfish ambition. So I was at a, I was at a political event recently. And this is, you know, this politics is new to me. This, I've never lived in a town that's been a political town. And I was invited to this event and I went. And one thing I realized is that at events like this, the prominent people, everyone wants, wants to talk to the prominent people. Everyone flocks to them at the end of the service, at the end of this event. What happened was that it, we were just all dismissed and the, the people who had the status and the people who were important immediately, everyone flocked around them. Now, I, I don't think this is necessarily bad, but there is this notion, I think, lurking in our hearts of selfish ambition. Rather than being genuine in our relationships, what we want to do is we want to get something out of people. We use them as means to an end. In the end, what we want from them is not their betterment necessarily, but we want the promotion of our own cause, our own self, Rather than associating with the lowly from whom we get nothing in return, rather than us being sacrificial and not seeking return, what we oftentimes do is associate with those of high status, those people who are important. And the reason why we do is for self, to gain self, to get something for ourselves. And brothers and sisters, this is not what the Lord has called us to do. The Lord has called us to associate with the lowly 
not the high, not those who have status. We are to seek to associate with the lowly. And the motive that drives us to get important people's attention is this notion of selfish ambition. What it's ultimately about is not what I can do for you, but what can you do for me? And brothers and sisters, this will tear the church apart. If our relationships with one another are just for self, we will not build up this body. And disunity will be fostered. And then secondly, there's this notion of conceit. This notion of conceit. Both selfish ambition and conceit are motives. They are what lie deep in our hearts. And conceit is this. Conceit is an excessively favorable opinion of one's own abilities and importance. An excessively favorable opinion of one's own ability and importance. And this Greek word is a compound word. The two words that make up this Greek word behind conceit is vain glory. To be conceited, to have conceit, is to seek one's own glory, to seek one's own status. But the Bible says that that is a vain pursuit, that is empty. And I think some, some sub-issues that help us understand whether we're operating with this motive, I think there's two ways that we can see if we're conceited. I think the first way is this. Those who are conceited, those who enjoy vain glory, are constantly consumed with thinking about how other people perceive them. People who are conceited are constantly consumed with how other people perceive them. They're constantly thinking about, well, how does this person think of me? What does this person think of me? How am I thought of? What are these people saying about me? And the relationship between that and conceit is this. When you're conceited, when you're withdrawn in yourself, when in your eyes all that matters is your own reputation and your own glory, you'll think about how others perceive you. You want others to think of you in the same way. You want them to agree with you about your own assessment of yourself. And if they don't, that really bothers you because you want them to buy into this. You want them to perceive you as you perceive yourself. And so you're constantly consumed with thinking about others, thinking about others' thoughts, thinking about whether others are assessing you positively or negatively. That's the first way we tell whether we have conceit. The second way is whether criticism completely tears us down. People who are conceited fall victim to the fear of man. What they do is they fear others' opinions. And so when someone disproves of them, that tears them down. They're very emotionally unstable whenever someone offers a criticism or a rebuke. And this goes back to the notion of they want others to perceive them the way that they perceive themselves. And brothers and sisters, we all do this to a degree, amen? We all struggle with these types of thoughts. But nonetheless, these are what disunify us. When we act it out in these motives, this is what breaks the church down, is conceit, self. And these notions are really about pride. We have a very high view of ourselves, and we want others to share that view. And this is Church Disunity 101. This will tear us down. 
And that's not what Paul's commanding here. Paul is saying that we should repent of these things, these motives, these deep-seated attitudes in our hearts. And rather, what is it that we should pursue? What is it that the Lord wants from us? But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. The main verb here is this notion of count. And this verb, count, is modified by the prepositional phrase that precedes it, in humility. So what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to, quote, count others more significant. The way we're supposed to do this, the spirit in which we are supposed to do this, is in humility. Now, humility is a uniquely Christian virtue. In the Greco-Roman world, humility was looked down upon. You are, not to, you are not supposed to humble yourselves before other people. You were supposed to try to achieve the highest status that you could through power and greed and deception. And what the Lord Jesus does when he comes into that context, that's the context that Philippi exists in. What Jesus does is he says no to all those, those things and he says, I come not to be served but to serve. He comes to be a doulos. A doulos is a slave. He comes to enslave himself to others, not to do his will, not to do what is in his benefit, but in the benefit of others. And that attitude of humility is what is supposed to mark all of us. We are not, to, we are not supposed to be haughty in our thinking, have high self-assessment, Rather, our thinking is to be very sober and lowly. We are to think of ourselves not as tremendous and as great, but as sinners in need of the grace of God. That's our mindset, dear brothers and sisters. And the way that mindset expresses itself on the outside, excuse me, I lost, I lost my page. The way that mindset is supposed to express itself outside Right at the end of verse three, we are to count others more significant than ourselves. We are to count others more significant. Now in teaching humility, it is important that we do not teach false humility. False humility is a manifestation of pride and we don't wanna teach that. And false humility is to say to other people, I am worthless, you are better than me, you, you are much better than me at everything, I am nothing, I am no good. I, am, I don't have any value. You're much more valuable than I am. That's not what Paul is teaching here. We do not regard others as more important in the sense of value or worth. The Bible says that all of us, all mankind is made in the image of God. And all of us are sinners and all of us need grace. And as a result of that, we are all on a level playing field. We all have the same value. Whether we're young, whether we're old, whether we're rich, whether we're poor, we all have the same value. Paul is not saying that we are to consider others more worth, of more worth or value than ourselves. Because that would be worship. We would be worshiping people and we don't want to do that. What Paul is saying here is he is saying the needs, desires, and wants of other people should be more important to us than our own desires, wants, and needs. 
Once again, this is a mindset. The ultimate question that we ask is not, what can you do for me? But what can I do for you? I am going to consider your life more important than my own. And brothers and sisters, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? He was of infinitely more value than us. But what he did is he humbled himself. And he said, I, came not to, I come not to be served, but to serve. My interests are not my own. Your interests are more important to me than my own. And he died for us. That's what it means. We follow Jesus. We have humility. We have an outlook that is focused not on self, dear friend, but on others. What can I do for you? Be humble. Now the third point for you. I get this from verse four. Imitate Jesus, verse five. Have humility, verse three. And now verse four, we'll conclude here. Write this, seek others' interests. Or to put it differently, seek the interests of others. This is how we have church unity. Paul begins verse four with a comment on self-preservation. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, and self-preservation is important. We can't love others at our best unless, we're doing our, unless we ourselves are doing well. Sometimes the most important thing that I can do for you and for my family is to go to bed. I get grumpy, I get irritable. <laughs> that was my wife, she said amen. Sometimes the best thing I can do is just go to bed. Now the reason why I go to bed is to wake up and serve my family, right Catherine, amen? But there is this healthy notion of self-preservation. We can only love others and serve others so long as we're healthy and that we're rested and that we're fed. So in order to serve others, we have to preserve ourselves. And that's what Paul, Paul assumes that in Philippians 2.4. Paul is assuming that when he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, we do that naturally, and that's important. We should do that. We should seek to preserve self. But ultimately, what is the reason for why we self-preserve? It's for others. It is for others, and, and Paul's point is not to teach the Philippians or us towards more self-preservation. That's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is that sometimes self-preservation can get, we can become too concerned with that. And Paul's point is this. Look not only to your own interests, self-preservation is important, but more importantly, look to the interests of others. Now this final statement here is chalked full of some nuggets, just beautiful nuggets. I want you to first recognize the verb here. The verb is look, verse four. I want you to see this, look. 
Now look isn't the best verb, the English verb, to describe what's going on here. Look can kind of be a passive, passive looking around, or it can be an intense focus. I'm not shifting my eyes on anything. I'm focusing on this thing right here. Now which is this Greek verb? It's the latter. The type of looking that we are supposed to do here, our vision is supposed to be fixed. We are supposed to look attentively, not passively. We aren't supposed to wait for others to come to us with their needs. We are supposed to meet them. We are supposed to look at their needs attentively, focused. And I think a good way to describe what's going on here, you think of a, a wife who's had a husband deployed for some time, a military wife, and she goes to the airport and she awaits her beloved husband who's been gone for a year. As people file off the airplane, what is she going to be doing? Is she going to be looking around and saying, where's my husband? She's going to be looking dead set. Her attention is going to be fixed. She is not going to move her eyes away from that plane. And that's what Paul is telling us here. That our attention should be fixed on other people. Not passive, not waiting around, not ho-humming, ho-humness, but fixed. And also I want you to notice, what is the tense of this verb? Look. What is the tense? Is it past, is it present, or is it future? It's present. And this is what that means. Our pursuing the needs of others is not something you do one time in the past. It's not something you do in the future and you should be procrastinating about. It's something you do right now. And how often is there the present tense? It's always applicable. We should always be seeking to do this. And the present tense of this verb communicates that. Now look at the beginning of verse four. Paul has this statement, each of you, each of you. Paul is being very specific about who he's talking to. He's talking to the whole congregation in Philippi. This is a very specific noun, each of us, all of us. It doesn't matter who you are. All of us, dear friend, are called to do this for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Each and every one of us. No one is excluded. What God is commanding for us, the way we have unity, is that we all buy in to seeking to meet the needs and interests of others. All of us. And Paul mentions in the ESV, it says the interests of others. We are to seek the interests of others. Now in Greek, this notion of interests, it doesn't really say interests. The ESV is using the word interests as a very vague word to describe what Paul is doing here. The Greek word is best translated things. So we might say, we might say this, each of you is to look not only to 
his own things, but also to the things of others. Now, things is a very general, general word. And the reason why Paul is using a general word is because the needs of others are general. There's no specific item that Paul is talking about here. Whatever it is that people want or need, that is what we should see continually as a church. It could be something very small. It could be getting a birthday gift for someone. It could be writing someone a letter of encouragement. It could be a compliment. It could be giving someone a ride to the doctor's office. And it also could be big. It could be buying someone a car who is in need. It could be giving someone $1,000 because of the financial struggles they're going in, going through. So Paul is using a vague term here. And the reason why is because the needs that we have are so big and so various that no one English word captures what Paul is saying here. We are to pursue all of it in one another. There's nothing in your life, dear friend, that me as a Christian should not be interested in helping you with, blessing you with, encouraging you in. It's all included. And then, Paul uses this word in verse four that doesn't really come out in an English translation. The interest of others includes everyone. So just as Paul is commanding all of us to do this, the object to whom we pursue is also all of us. It's everyone. Oftentimes, whenever we seek to do good to others, we do good to those whom we like or we get along with. And what Paul is saying here is that we are to seek everyone's good interests, not just a select few, but everyone. And we are to do this passionately, not passively, not waiting for someone to come to us asking for help. We are to seek out attentively with vigor the interests of everyone. And all of us, dear friend, are called to do this. Well, we've covered a lot of ground and the Lord's word is rich, is it not? And dear friends, this is so simple. In theory, this is so simple. I'm not teaching you anything today that you haven't heard. This is basic Christianity 101 This is very simple. But brothers and sisters, do you know what keeps us from doing this? It is our sin. Due to our sin nature, we are not naturally bent towards those outside of us. We naturally seek self. What we want oftentimes more than ever is self-preservation. We want others to think well of us. We want others to come talk to us first. We want others to be nice for, to us before we serve them. And if they don't meet our requirements, we don't show them love. We might show them a cold shoulder. Brothers and sisters, that tears the church apart. That is sin. The Bible says that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Your calling as a Christian, dear friend, is not to serve those whom are easy to serve. Your call is to give up your life for others. And I can tell you that I know that many of you are doing that. There are many of you who are engaged in this work of selfless service, humility. And my encouragement to you, dear friend, would be to keep going, keep pressing, keep serving, even if it's not recognized. Keep going. You are being conformed to the image of Christ. Keep fighting your sin. Keep saying no to self. Now, there are also others who are not doing this, who are far too focused on self to be able to give of themselves. And my dear friends, what God wants you to do this morning is he wants you to repent. The Bible uses a very specific word about changing our lives, and that word is repentance. We have to repent we first have to become disgusted with ourselves that we are so focused on ourselves. We have to see that in our hearts and only the Holy Spirit can reveal that to you. But I encourage you to ask God to show you where in your life this notion of selfish ambition and conceit is coming up. But when we choose to reject these vices, when we choose to say no to sin, no to self, and yes to Christ and to others, we become unified as a church. And brothers and sisters, when we are unified, we have joy and we have peace and we have an impact in this world. And that's what we want. Father, we bless your name. We thank you for Jesus Christ. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Father, I do pray for the power of Jesus Christ to be in this place. We so often fail to imitate him. We claim him with our lips, yet our hearts are far from him. Oh, Father, pour out his spirit upon us. Father, I pray for those persons who are wallowing in self, selfishness, fear of man and self-pity, that you would bring your grace to bear upon their lives, your conviction and your grace, that you would move them away from self and move them towards others. And Father, for those who are engaging in the work, Father, bless them, keep them, grant them repentance as well. Lord, we can do none of this outside of your grace. But Father, because you love us and because you're kind to us, Father, change is possible. And we do pray, Father, that you would produce in us a love for Christ and therefore a love for one another. Bless this church, Lord, and lead us to unity. In Christ's name, amen.